Six years ago, Twitter was experiencing outages due to high traffic on a regular basis. Back in 2010, Twitter was built as a monolithic Ruby on Rails application. Twitter migrated to a microservices architecture to fix these problems. During this migration, the engineers at Twitter learned how to build and scale highly distributed microservice architectures. William Morgan was an engineer at Twitter during that time, and he is now the CEO of Buoyant.io, a company building open source microservices infrastructure. Some of the big problems at Twitter were solved at the communication layer using an RPC library called Finagle. At Buoyant, these lessons are being applied to a project called Linkerd, an RPC proxy. William Morgan is the CEO of Buoyant.io, a company building open source microservice infrastructure. William, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So your company, Buoyant, is mostly ex-Twitter engineers, and Twitter is well known for successfully migrating from a monolithic Rails application to a massively distributed architecture with lots of microservices. We've had several shows recently where we have talked about migrations from monolith to microservices, and this migration is often about creating an infrastructure that allows you to scale your teams as well as scaling your software. And at Twitter, both of these were important. When Twitter began the migration to microservices around 2010, what what were the specific problems that Twitter was attempting to solve with that migration? Yeah, this is a really good question because uh, I think in many ways, the story of what happened at Twitter while fascinating in, 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 in many ways, it's actually pretty atypical. So I was there, uh, I joined in uh, June of 2010, uh, and that was kind of the very tail end of anyone really believing that the, the Ruby on Rails monolith, which we affectionately called the monorail, uh, was a viable path forward. We had, we had invested a tremendous amount of engineering resources uh, into making this thing performant, we had tuned the garbage the Ruby, you know, garbage collector. We had done all sorts of um, optimizations at the application level, um, but we were in this very strange situation, very atypical situation, where we literally could not run enough copies of the Rails app to to survive with the traffic that was coming in. Um, and you know, to a certain extent, it was uh, uh, what we had done up to then was was pretty natural. Like you, you don't want to prematurely optimize. You don't want to prematurely, you know, build things that are going to be hyperscalable when you don't even know if you're going to have five users. Never mind, you know, hundreds of uh, hundreds of millions of them. Um, but Twitter, just as a product, had this very weird, you know, very very fast rise in in usage that it so just if, stressed. If I- yeah. If I understand the scalability model correctly, in the early days, it was basically you know, like let's say you've got one instance of Twitter up. It's a monolithic Rails application, and you have a hundred users that are using it, and then you have a, a, a thousand users using it, and then you say, "Oh, okay, well, now we have enough load on this one server that's serving as a, mon- a monolith." So we spin up another virtual machine that's an exact copy of this monolithic giant application. Now we have two VMs that are serving all of our users, and you continue that to scale that 
that monolithic uh, cloning process to to the millions of users that that Twitter uh, scaled to. Was that the the, mo- the early model for, for scalability? Yeah, that's and that's you know monolith or microservice. That's the fundamental model for scaling stuff. You just add more copies. Okay, and then you you know you have to be a little intelligent about how you do it. You have to be intelligent about how you distribute traffic among the copies. But if you know each every instance is capable of serving some amount of load, some number of requests per minute or per second, and you just make more copies. Right, and so we talk about breaking these monolithic applications into smaller services. And when we talk about breaking into these smaller services, these microservices. It makes it easier to scale our teams as well as our technology. So how does that look in practice? What kinds of technical things can we do more easily? What kinds of teamwork can we do more easily when we scale by the, in terms of microservices rather than monolithic applications? Yeah, this is a good question because, uh, you know, as I said in the beginning, what the story of Twitter is quite atypical. So when we got into this and we started when we started saying, OK, this this the, the monorail is no longer a viable, you know, path forward for us. We need to start, you know, architecting things in a different way. It was purely around we need to scale the, you know, the, the system to handle traffic. It was purely a technical consideration. We knew, you know, there were these kind of, you know, vaunted uh uh, benefits of increasing the team, you know, f- flexibility, agility of the org, and org or whatever. But really, it was more of a struggle for, you know, we're just trying to survive. There was a very famous, you know, incident in, in 2010 where uh, the World Cup happened that summer. And yeah, uh, it was uh, kind of a harrowing experience being an engineer because every time there was a goal, the site would go down. Just a one-to-one correlation. So anytime anyone scored a goal the site would go down. And, you know, that was, that was kind of the wake-up call for us. Okay, we can't, we, can't, we can't survive like this. So Twitter moved into this world, into the world of microservices for purely uh, kind of technical considerations. Um, I think for, for companies today, those are not necessarily the best reasons. The best reasons are actually organizational reasons. Hmm. That is interesting. So when a company moves to microservices, Certainly, some of these problems will be solved, um, and I'd love to talk about how those problems get solved when you move from a monolith to microservices, but new problems emerge as well. So as Twitter built out the microservices infrastructure, can you talk about the isolated problems that you were fixing and how switching to microservices in specific instances fixed those problems, and what were the problems that emerged as a result of the microservices mi- migration for each of those problems? Yeah, well, this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be a, a long answer. <laughs> um, so first, I should say, we actually didn't have the term microservices back then. We called what we were doing SOA, right, software-oriented, um, service-oriented architecture. And this was kind of a pejorative term. Even even back in 2010, this was an approach that was typically associated with like CORBA and ESB and all sorts of horrible things that, you know, th- that no one wanted to touch anymore. Um, so we, we used the, you know, we called it an SOA and we kind of gritted our teeth and just, you know, powered through the fact that a lot of people had, had done this and had done it in a horrible way. Um, and so... 
you know, the, the goals for us, as I said, were kind of these technical goals. Okay, we've got this monolith. It's really hard to scale this thing. Let's break it down into different services so that if nothing else, we have granular scalability. Okay, so this part of the site here that is really easy, um, you know, that, that can handle a lot of, of QPS. Well, we don't need that many copies of that. We don't need that many instances. This part over here that's really uh, painful to run, well, we're going to need lots of copies. So we wanted to have this granular mechanism for scaling stuff. And then I think at an architectural level, we also wanted to have, you know, it, this is a fairly uh, common, you know, kind of idea in, in, in software design is we want to have these little modules. We want to have this modular design and like, you know, you don't have to understand everything. You just have to understand kind of the boundaries of how things fit together. So those are the motivations going in. Um, what we found was that uh, there were a, a tremendous number of benefits kind of at the organizational level, which I'll talk about uh, uh, very happily. And, um, and, but there was a lot of complexity that got introduced, largely around the fact that we now had introduced communication but in places that it had never been before. So we had, you know, in, in the good old days of the, of the monorail, we had function calls. Function A would call function B, would call function C. And you don't really think about this making a function call. Like the performance semantics are pretty clear, right? The reliability semantics are pretty clear. The function call doesn't really fail except in extreme cases. And we had taken all those function calls and we had replaced them with network calls. And yes, they were internal network calls. So we weren't going out to, to the outside world. But they, you know, network calls <laughs> have very different performance characteristics and they have very different uh, failure characteristics from, from, from function calls. And in fact, we had replaced things that were single function calls with a network call between 50 of one thing and, and 5,000 of another or 1,000 a, a of one instance uh, of one service, 1,000 instances of one service and 10,000 instances of another service. So that's 1,000 times 10,000 possible ways to fail or ways to go wrong. So that was the that was a big source of complexity. And when you talk about that complexity from the service to service communication, you know, a couple of things come to mind. So the first one that comes to mind is like, you know, when we're learning to debug stuff in college or maybe in high school or whenever, you know, you open up the debugger and it's like this monolithic thing and it's like you can do a stack trace and you find it's very easy to look through the stack trace and look at you know, oh, okay, this crashed here because this function call made a call here and this function call that's deeply nested made a null pointer exception. And it's not that hard compared to microservices or anything with that's distributed because you have these network calls. So it's, it you know, you make a call to a service and basically this service says error and you have no idea where why that error was caused. And since Twitter was doing this in the days, the early days where this was becoming a theme, this microservices architecture, this you know restful um, you know network call based architecture, the tooling to deal with these distributed systems was not there. And some of the tools that were around, like configuration management, log processing, TCP dump. These kinds of tools were lacking. So explain why those tools were lacking and what what you had to do at Twitter to rebuild a way to debug and assess what is going on in this type of architecture. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. You know, in a monolithic world, you attach your debugger to some running instance and you can kind of get, understand what's going on. You know, now that now that we're in this multi-service world, well, a single request fails, and you don't you don't know why. And not only 
do you not know why? You don't know where it failed. So a single request makes its way through service A and then service B and then service C and so on and so forth. Each of those services is, you know, hundreds or thousands of instances. Well, you don't even know where to find the log file, you know, and much less where to attach your, your debugger. So that's that's the sort of, uh, that's kind of a classic problem with these uh, multi-service systems. Um, in some cases, the technology was there. It was just, uh, you know, hidden, you know, behind you know, kind of the walled garden of, of companies like Google or, or um, maybe less so in 2010, Facebook, that had, had to face these challenges. For example, uh, this this whole, like, how do I understand what happened with this request is kind of the classic setup for distributed tracing. Okay, Google had a very powerful distributed tracing system called Dapper that they had used for a long time, and then they had published a paper about, and then you know, uh, in response to that, Twitter said, okay, well, we, we're going to need something similar. And Twitter developed Zipkin, which is now an open source distributed tracing uh, framework that, that uh, everyone can use. But for that exact class of problem, okay, I need to somehow correlate. I need to be able to see what happens on an individual request basis, and then I'll sample the requests. And now I can say, okay, what were the slowest requests over the last hour? And where were they slow? What service was causing the pain? So that's a good example of the sorts of tooling that you have to build up because you've introduced this new architecture and you've introduced this new kind of source of complexity, which is the network, the inter, um, inter-application network call, service-to-service um, network call. Mm. Let's talk more about this communication layer because your co-founder, Oliver, gave a talk that I watched on YouTube and he said that... The new microservices architectures can lack resiliency, and we need resiliency because these systems can break in unexpected ways. That's the nature of distributed systems. And one place where we need this resiliency is in our communication layer. So we've kind of touched on that a little bit, that this communication layer is this network network communication layer as opposed to just you know within the monolith. But talk a little bit more about what what you define as the communication layer of a microservices architecture. Yeah, good question. So, uh, one of the big discoveries we had at Twitter was that um, we ha- we had to start thinking about communication uh, in in kind of a new way. Okay, so typically, you know, or traditionally, the way you thought about communication is, is this idea of like either layer three or layer four in the OSI model. I'm making a, you know, I'm making a, a TCP connection here. And like, I want to monitor how many packets are going there. And like, if that TCP connection goes down, well, I want to restart it. When we move to um, the world of, of microservices or, or multi-service architectures, we had to think about it in a new way. And actually, we, we, it was much a way that's much more aligned with uh, layer five in the OSI model, which has kind of been ignored for, for a long time. Layer five is a session layer. So here we're talking about, okay, when service A talks to service B, like what are the semantics of that communication kind of at the, at the level of uh, I'm making an RPC call? So forget about the fact that, you know, service B has 100 instances and service C has 1,000 and, and they're in, you know, maybe they're being scheduled by Mesos and they're like being distributed across a whole bunch of machines and like there's some TCP, you know, or IP magic to make that actually happen. What I really care about is when service A talks to service B, you know, is that communication failing? Is it happening on time? You know, am I hitting some kind of timeout and I need to retry? Uh, when a failure happens, am I allowed to retry this this behavior? There's a fundamental problem here, which is that uh, when you make 
you know, when you ask, when service A asks service B to do something, you may not get a response back. And when you don't get a response back, you're not really sure what to do, right? Did it happen, but you just didn't get, you, you just don't know about it? Or did it not happen? And depending on the semantics of the, of the call that you're making, you either need to retry that or not retry that. Service A could just be really slow. You know, maybe if you wait a little bit longer, it'll reply. These are all the very difficult questions um, that, that become not only important, but kind of critical to the performance of the application as a whole. And so that's, that's a layer at which we started operating at. That's what we're, uh, um, you know, the, the service-to-service communication, which kind of corresponds with layer five in the OSI model. Uh, and Twitter built this library, this RPC library called Finagle, to handle these sorts of things and, and uh, ended up open sourcing Finagle, which is, which is good. Um, and Finagle, basically, w w there were kind of two parts to Finagle. Part one was there was a programming model, okay, specific to Scala, you know, type, you know, very strongly typed and functional programming and, you know, the, very much the Twitter programming way. But there was also the operational model. So you as a service owner would say, okay, I'm service A, I want to make a call to service B for this, you know, RPC over here. And then Finagle under the hood would handle the load balancing across all the destination instances. It would handle the retry policies. It would handle failures and, and, and high latency uh, endpoints. And it would just kind of take care of that stuff for you. Right. And I want to talk more about Finagle because that is much of the focus around how, what led you to starting Buoyant. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about RPC itself. We did do a show recently about Kubernetes and gRPC, so some listeners who are more curious about RPC can look in that episode. But I would like to talk about what what is RPC? Like, I think probably some listeners haven't dealt with it in detail, and it would be great if you could just explain what RPC is and why did Twitter build its own RPC library? Yeah, well, that's a good question because RPC is uh, one of those terms that has had kind of a storied history and, uh, you know, dating back to the 90s within the days of Corba and kind of everything associated with that kind of got this, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, not so great history <laughs> behind it. Um, but RPC, you know, kind of at its core means I'm doing a, a – I'm doing – uh, well, it stands for remote procedure call. So service A makes a call to service B, and and I get a response back. Okay, so it's not, it's it's basically a contrast to to asynchronous. You know, I'm going to put something on a queue, and then something happens, and I, I don't you know I don't really know whether it happens or not. Something happens. So RPC is basically synchronous communication between two things. So I send you I send you a message and I get a response back and I wait until that response comes back. So I have I, I know whether that response came back, whether it was an error, whether it timed out, things like that. Now under the you know how that's implemented is any any number of things. Like you mentioned earlier, RESTful HTTP calls. That's certainly a common way of doing RPC. Uh, Twitter actually used Thrift, which is a um, uh, a protocol that was developed at, at Facebook and is now an Apache project, which gives you binary encoding. But it doesn't really matter. It's you know the the in, when we talk about RPC, we're talking about you know synchronous communication. Okay, and. What is in contrast to RPC? Like, what are, what is another protocol that I would use to communicate between between you know two remote services? Like, just to you know, because I think people hear things like REST and 
um, you know, RPC, and then they also hear about TCP. And you know, unless they've taken a networking class in college, they don't exactly know where what level of abstraction these different things fit at. Can you sort that out? Sure. So TCP is the easy one. Okay, this is kind of under the hood of of almost everything that we talk about. There are network protocols that are not built on top of TCP, but by and large, um, when we're talking about distributed systems, communications, for the most part, we're talking about things that run off of TCP. Okay, and TCP, the, the level of, of control that you get out of TCP is, if you give me an IP address and a port, I will give you a way of sending bytes to that IP address and port. And that's, you know, and getting bytes back. So, We'll get, we'll get that out of the way. Everything else that I'll talk about is built on top of that. So we're going to assume that we can take any two, you know, any two uh, kind of bits of code and we can send bytes between them and get bytes back. That's what TCP gives us. Now, um, uh, RPC, it's basically in contrast to th- uh, things like asynchronous communication where I'm putting something onto a queue or things like PubSub where I'm pushing something out to the, to the world and you know some number of consumers are are getting it. So it's more of an architectural, you know, point to point. A talks to B, and I get a response back. Versus I'm putting something into some you know some big blob over there, and I don't know what happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So uh, it, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, and so since we're going to be talking about Finagle, um, I mean, you mentioned. Finagle provides this programming model that makes it easier to write services. And this core programming model of Finagle consists of futures, services, and filters. Explain what these different concepts in Finagle are and how do they create an architecture for communication in, in distributed RPC systems? Sure, I'm. I'm happy to talk a little bit about this. It uh, it's a very Twitter specific way of of thinking. Um, and when we started Buoyant, we actually kind of uh, papered over that <laughs> that side of things and focused on the operational side. But what Finagle gave you from the kind of the programming model side was um, every time I make an RPC call or every time I you know I I ask another service for something, what I get back at the programming level is this is this future, okay? It's a future of the result. And what that means is I may not have the result yet, but I can continue programming with this future as if I did. And because Finagle is, is built around um, uh, functional programming, I can then start chaining operations on top of this, or I can start filtering over results of, of, of um, you know, f- filtering over collections of, of futures, and I can do transformations on the result without ever having to wait for, you know, without ever having to block in the program and say, I want you to actually wait for the bytes to come back. So the Finagle programming model is, is largely concerned about, you know, when you're programming, you don't actually want to say, okay, now, you know, pause the program until, you know, 500 milliseconds have elapsed and I get the, you know, and I get this result back. You want to keep programming. You want to program in a, in a way that uh, kind of is independent of the execution model that's happening under the hood. And Finagle did this in a very type-safe, Scala-specific way that actually was quite powerful for Twitter. So it sounds like you are able to push some of the difficulties that the programmer would otherwise have to deal with into the communication layer with Finagle. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Now, you know, in 
in the outside world, Finagle has actually become fairly popular. Uh, we joke about it a little bit at, at Buoyant uh, because it's uh, it's this weird intersection of, of interests where you have to be, you know, uh, kind of fuddy-duddy enough to want to be on the JVM to use Finagle, but you've also got to be hip enough that you want to do, like, functional programming over features of stuff. So given that that's kind of a weird intersection, Finagle's actually become quite popular, and it's used today uh, to power uh, a bunch of the infrastructure, not only at Twitter, but uh, at, at uh, Pinterest and SoundCloud. Pinterest, and SoundCloud, and, yep, yep. yeah. Yeah. So okay, so so what were the things that what were the things that you took out of Finagle as you were you know uh, or maybe you want to tell a little bit about the story you know you left Twitter uh, to build out something that was kind of an extrapolation of the ideas that Finagle were was fermenting or do you want to discuss that though discuss the transition from Finagle to your work at Buoyant. Sure. So Finagle was a, was actually two things at, at Twitter. As I said, it's it was this programming model, which was quite interesting and quite powerful for Twitter, but it is in many ways um, fairly Twitter-specific, um, or, or rather has a whole lot of opinions about how you're going to interact with the world. It was also an operational model. So when you made a, a call with Finagle, it did all this stuff for you, okay? And what happened at Twitter was, because we were fairly prescriptive early on about, okay, the way that all of Twitter is going to work in this post-monorail world is you're going to write your services using Finagle and using these other, you know, Twitter server and, and a bunch of other kind of uh, Twitter libraries and utils. When a request came in, okay, and it went from service A to service B or service C, um, each of these services would use Finagle to then, you know, the Finagle client library to then talk to the destination service. And that would use the Finagle service library to receive that communication. And it would use Finagle client library to then make any outgoing calls. So basically, Finagle was wired all the way through the stack. And once it happened, Finagle itself became a platform. So we started adding features to Finagle without service owners ever having to know or, or care about that. So Finagle, like I said, is doing, you know, started doing load balancing. It started talking to our service discovery mechanisms. Um, it started doing, uh, and actually the load balancing became quite quite sophisticated. Um, and it started doing, you know, failure and, re and retry handling. And then we actually added a routing layer on top. So you could express routing concepts at the, at the RPC layer. And that became a very powerful tool for tackling the next set of huge challenges that we had running this big uh, microservice architecture, which is how do you do things like staging and canarying and dog fooding and any kind of like pre-production, you know, assessment or quality control without actually pushing code to, to production. Explain how you transitioned from working on Finagle at Twitter to working at Buoyant, to building Buoyant. Like, what is the key mission of Buoyant? What are you trying to do? Um, and what, what are you trying to build and commercialize? So at the high level, we want to fix the operational challenges that come around that come about with building microservices today okay and and the story the lesson that we learned from twitter is that the majority of those challenges stem from the network this network communication that we've introduced um, and the more and the majority of challenges can be solved by controlling that by controlling it by giving visibility and control into the the um the cross service communication and so you know kind of Dropping down a level, we saw the transformation that happened at Twitter. We saw how Finagle was such a powerful 
part of that and how Finagle kind of the operational side, forget about the programming side for, for a minute, but the operational side made this whole system something that you could manage and something that you could understand. And so what we want to do is take those same ideas and, in fact, the same technology, because Twitter uh, open-sourced Finagle, and turn that into a product that every company could use. Twitter invested so much time and energy in moving from monolith to microservices because it didn't have this infrastructure available. It had to build it all from scratch. You know, so we wanted to, to it, we wanted to, <laughs> we wanted to help other companies. So they, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to go through that same investment process. So the, if I'm correct, the first core product that you are working on at Buoyant, the first core project, I should say, and that's not really a product, is Linkerd. Could you explain what Linkerd is? Yeah, so Linkerd, and thank you for pronouncing it like that. <laughs> it's uh, been kind of a re- recurring problem with the naming system. <clears throat> um, <laughs> So we envision it as uh, – it's, it's effectively a, an RPC proxy, okay? And we call it Linkerd because we envision it as a dynamic linker for microservices. So just like in the operating system world, you know, if, you're, if you have a, a, a program that's running and you need to pull in a dynamic library, you, you have a dynamic linker that takes care of the work of doing that for you. So you just make a call. You just say, okay, I'm calling function X, and the dynamic linker will locate the, you know, the code on disk. It will pull it in. It will do whatever kind of memory mapping stuff has to address translation to make this all work, and then you make the call. And you don't really think about that as, as a programmer. So we wanted to have a similar idea for um, for service-to-service calls. So we wanted to say, okay, if service A calls something in service B, it should be able to just connect to localhost 1234 and say, you know, I'm talking to service B, and everything else should be taken care of for it, okay? And that's that's what we've tried to do with Linkerd. So you, it, it's, a, it's a proxy, okay? And, and it's often used with HTTP, but it's, you know, not HTTP-specific. And your service, rather than service A talking to service B directly, you connect to localhost one two three four. You say host colon B. You know you pretend it's H, it's it's service B, and you just make the communication as if as if it were a service B. So the application doesn't really have to care about this. And what Linkerd does is now it does all the stuff that Finagle was doing for us at Twitter on the operational side. So it'll talk to your service discovery mechanism. It'll find out where all the instances are, you know, that correspond to service B. It'll load balance across them in a very intelligent way. So if one of them is slow, well, it'll shift traffic away from it. If one of them is failing, well, we'll stop talking to it. Um, and it gives you a layer of telemetry, so we'll measure and monitor everything and, and expose kind of latencies of communication and, and histograms of like the, the, the payload sizes and stuff in this big JSON endpoint. And then finally, there's a routing layer on top of that, um, and this is where things get a little bit uh, more complex, but the routing layer is what allows us to do uh, kind of the higher level um, uh, features of, okay, well, now I want to, I want to, you know, I want to do, I want to use this guy for staging, or I want to use this guy for, for, as a canary, or I want to use this instance that's never been tested. I want to do like a blue green deploy between these two things. So that's, that's the not so short story. Right. Well, let's make it even longer. So when, (laughs) when Twitter was moving to microservices, um, or maybe shortly after, uh, I think Ben Hindman was at the company, and he is the creator of Apache Mesos, the core creator. And Mesos is this data center operating system that is supposed to be this big tool for managing all your distributed systems. And it's how it's this big abstraction that you think of as 
the thing that is just managing your distributed systems. It's managing your your containers or maybe your VMs. Um, and you know, this is also comparable to Kubernetes. Kubernetes is this thing developed at Google. We've done a number of shows about it recently, where it manages your containers as if all of your containers across a data center as if you have this giant operating system um it sort of unifies uh all of the logic of this distributed system into one tool and what i am curious about is how linkerd fits into the kubernetes story or the mesos story the, these or docker swarm you know there are all, all these competing tools that are trying to be the data center operating system thing. And I thought that these tools would serve the type of purpose that you're you're discussing with Linkerd. Okay, so these so the, the schedulers like Mesos and Kubernetes are a critical component of any kind of real large scale, uh, I'd say modern uh, multi-service uh, or even monolithic um, you know, uh, architecture, but they they are at a they're operating at a level below what what Finagle and what Linkerd is is operating at. So what they give you is you've got a lot of processes, you got a lot of code you want to run, and you don't care about individual machines anymore, right? You just don't you don't want to think about an individual machine. You just got a pool of machines, you know, whether these are VMs or whether these are physical machines. You don't really care. In fact, you probably have a mix of both in many cases. And so you, what you do is you say to Kubernetes or to Mesos, hey, like, just give me, you know, run five copies of this and run 50 copies of that, okay? And they will take care of kind of the baseline level of, of reliability that you need, which is that, okay, well, we can deploy multiple copies of this. And if, you know, if one of these instances goes down, well, we'll just restart it. And then, you know, in the case of something like Mesos, maybe we can be really fancy and we can start trying to co-locate, um, you know, different processes or different instances that have orthogonal resource profiles. So if something is very uh, disk heavy, well, we can put it on the same machine as something that's very, you know, CPU heavy because that should be okay. But we won't put two CPU heavy things on the same machine because then they'll contend. So Mesos and Kubernetes are very good at at at, at that, which is, um, uh, you know, it was certainly at Twitter, Mesos itself was a fundamental part of the story. You know, in the <laughs> in the in the early days, I remember because I was a service owner at, at, at Twitter. I built the the very first photos service way back in 2011. You know, the way you would launch a new service is you'd go find the guy who had the spreadsheet, and you'd be like, "Hey, I need like five instances," and then you know maybe he'd give them to you, or maybe not, or maybe you'd have to bring the bottle of whiskey, and you, you got you got to know kind of which which brand of scotch he really liked. Um, and that's, you know, that, that lasts for a while, but that's not really a good long-term strategy. So once we had Mesos, we could, we could kind of avoid those sorts of problems. Um, and so bringing it back to Linkerd, we treat those as, as service discovery endpoints. So Linkerd can talk to the Marathon API if you're running Mesos. We can talk to the Kubernetes API if you're on Kubernetes. And what we do is we find, we use those to resolve, okay, where are the instances? You ran 12 instances of service A. Okay, well, Kubernetes, tell me where those are. All right, good. And now I can do request-level load balancing and routing and whatever else on top of that. So what Linkerd gives you on top of that is uh, kind of resilience at the, at the layer 5 level, at the you know, service A talking to service B level. Um, 
And we also, because we're able to talk to these um, API, to, to the APIs, to the Kubernetes API and the Marathon API, we also isolate you from the details of, um, you know, the application shouldn't have to care about whether it's running on Kubernetes or whether it's running on, on Mesos. You should just say, hey, I want to talk to service A, independent of where that service is deployed or, or how, it's, how it's managed. So that's what Linkerd gives you. So you referred to this hilarious story about how at Twitter around 2010, when this tooling, when Finagle was being built, there was this spreadsheet that teams would share, which listed the dependencies of each service and what that service talked to. And unfortunately, the overall system of Twitter was so dynamic that this spreadsheet would just always be out of date. Um, and this is like how the dependency graph of services was understood circa 2010 shows how far we have come in six years. Um, and, you know, this this question of the dependencies uh, is this, the same thing we discussed earlier when you mentioned um, OpenZifkin, I think, is the, is the tool that is commonly used to break down these distributed systems stack trace problems. Um how does how does uh, how does Linkerd fit into this conversation of dependency management and like managing the the Death Star of dependencies that you have? Yeah, so this is a big challenge as companies scale out. So when you start out and you have three services, okay, life is not that hard. You know, service A is. Service B is failing. Well, you know, its upstreams are A and its downstreams are C, and you can kind of, everyone kind of has this knowledge in their head. Once you get to the point where you have 500 services, well, now things are complicated. Even when you're at 50 services or 15 services, keeping track of, you know, what the upstreams and what the downstreams are, what the dependencies are for every service becomes very complicated. And we had a series of problems like this at, at, at Twitter where, you know, You'd have very well-intentioned people come around and say, "Okay, like let's let's make a spreadsheet, let's fix this." Okay, and you know, then two weeks would pass, and it'd be three a.m. and some system would be down, and you'd like bring out this spreadsheet, and it was out of date. It was totally out of date. It was out of date an hour after the spreadsheet was made. Okay, and the the problem is not that you know people were dumb or that they lied. The problem is that. A lot of the work, uh, and I kind of touched upon this earlier, but a lot of the, a lot of the um, work that you do in 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 building a microservice or a multi-service architecture is you enable the engineering team to not have to communicate with each other quite so much. So you 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 have individual services, you have teams that own them. The teams you know are responsible for being on call for them, and the teams run their own deploy schedules. And so you do all this work to make your engineering org really fast. And this is probably the most powerful benefit out of you know moving to to microservices. But as a result of that. You you lose a lot of coordination between between teams. Okay, so that's that's the, set up for the, the spreadsheet problem. becomes eventually consistent. Yes, that's right, and in a very long with a very long periodicity. In fact, no, I would say it's not. It's the opposite of eventually consistent. The spreadsheet is correct for about five minutes, and then it loses correctness. <laughs> and then when you go through and you you run through the engine again, you can make it correct, but it only lasts five minutes because people are always deploying new stuff. They're deploying new services or new versions, you know. And and there's you've done all this work to make this this beautiful uncoordinated process, so you can be really fast. But now things like what are my dependencies start suffering. Okay, so that's the setup. Now tools like OpenZipkin are 
tremendously useful for sorts of, for things like this because what you want to do is you need to determine these dependencies based on actual runtime traffic okay you need this to be a generated you know the spreadsheet has to be generated from code or from running systems not from someone going around and asking people what their what their tribal knowledge is okay so zipkin is certainly a nice way of doing that because not only do you get the full traces you know who's talking to whoever else and so, and what Linkerd does, the reason this comes into play is Linkerd will emit those Zipkin traces for you. So if you're proxying your code, you know, your RPC calls through Linkerd, not only are you getting load balancing and retries and, you know, a bunch of other uh, nice kind of baseline resilience systems, but you're emitting Zipkin traces and then without you having to integrate Zipkin libraries, Okay, and then you can start aggregating that stuff, and now you can start answering those questions. And in fact, in our in our commercial product, this is one of the very first things that we built: is just show me the service topology, show me the map of who talks to whom, and make it the live map. Okay, don't show me what it was two weeks ago. I want to know who's talking to whom today, because that's the first question you ask when you're in an incident and it's 3 a.m. and one of these services is dying. Is where's this traffic coming from, and who else am I affecting? That is great. Um, okay, so this is coming into resolution for me. Um, and so one thing I'm kind of understanding it now is what a GR, what an RPC proxy is, because when I was preparing for this interview, I was like, so if I'm using this thing with Kubernetes, the Linkerd, if I'm using Linkerd with Kubernetes, I'm not using gRPC because Linkerd is an RPC, but now I understand that it is an RPC proxy. So I can proxy gRPC through Linkerd is, and it gives me this decoration. Is that accurate? It's accurate with one asterisk, which is that gRPC support is still about a month or two away. Ah, okay, okay. Well, so I think that you know that that's a that's a great segue to this quote that uh, I, I I saw that you had written, which is quote the rapid rise of exciting new technologies like Docker, Mesos, Kubernetes, and gRPC easily makes armchair architects of us all. End quote. And, you know, this show is all about armchair architecture. Um, that's basically <laughs> all I do. And since you have been in the weeds actually building this type of architecture, like, you know, I think this, this you know, this, this fact of like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, I come to the conclusion that gRPC and Linkerd work together because Linkerd is just an RPC proxy, but it actually doesn't work because gRPC support is not there yet. I think this is like the perfect example of the type of thing that like, oh, actually it doesn't work. And it's the kind of thing that you understand if you're in the weeds, like you're you're not on the sidelines just reading about these problems or reporting on them. You're at work solving these problems. Could you tell me where, like, what are some more of these these things that get misunderstood by people on the sidelines, the armchair architects of the world? Tell me, like, what are the things that look different when you're in the weeds actually building this type of system? So Jeff, I actually thought your comment was quite astute. I mean, you're you're correct. gRPC is an RPC protocol, and you know, Linkerd is an RPC proxy. And you know, the only reason that we don't support it now is because there's two or three things that we have to clean up before we can support it. So I wouldn't say that was arm, armchair architecture at all. I think my my you know that that quote there was more um, along the lines of. There are many problems that you run into running big systems at scale, and you only run into them when you're actually running it. So, if you're, you know, if you're 
the armchair architecture is, well, I'm sitting back and I'm saying, okay, listen, I've got, uh, you know, here's a cool new language over here, and here's a cool new protocol, and let's see, uh, here's a cool new queuing system, and here's a cool new scheduler. Well, this clearly is the right way to build our system. Okay, that's, that's more armchair architecture. So I'll give you, I think the best way to illustrate this is I'll give you a couple examples um, of horrible things that happened at Twitter. Okay, horrible incidents that then informed the way that we that we architected our systems and the and the code that we wrote and that the things that were so bad and yet so unpredictable. Okay, so let's see where to, <laughs> where to begin. Um, one of the most interesting um, things for us was that we had a series of incidents that were caused by us not being able to bring up our services. So, you know, we're in this big multi-service environment. One of the services dies, okay, because someone made a mistake. All right, well, this happens, right? You, you made a conf you put a typo in the config change and, like, you didn't catch it, and now all the services are dying. Okay, now we try to bring it, so we quickly try and bring it back up, right, so we can get the site back to, to work. Every time we bring up a single instance, all 3,000 clients talk to it, it gets overloaded, and it falls over. Okay, so we cannot, we can't bring the service up. All right, what are we going to do? Um, okay, well, let's find its upstreams. Okay, let's find the services that are talking to it, and let's shut those off, okay, so that then we can, we can restart the original service. Um, okay, well, now we have the same problem with those guys because we can't bring them up either. So let's find the upstreams to that, and pretty soon, you know, this whole thing escalates until you are taking down the entire site because this one service died, okay? And that's that's a... That's a horrible life to live, but this was a this is a real life example of the sorts of problems that happen. Uh, and in this case, it was particular to the way that we were doing retries and the way that we were doing, you know, the, the kind of the behavior that we had encoded when you didn't get a response from a system. So, um, the, you know, the, uh, the 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 solution there is to be a little more intelligent about retries rather than you know you, uh, just to give you kind of a you know dive a little bit deeper in here the, when you're doing uh, kind of the the first step that everyone does you know and and it works well for things like web browsers is you say okay I'm going to try and hit this remote endpoint I'm going to load this web page and if it doesn't respond within like 500 milliseconds well I'll try again okay and then I'll do this up to five times okay well I'll be a little more intelligent I'll actually wait a little bit I'll like I'll do exponential back off that sounds cool I'm gonna like wait a little bit longer every time okay and when you have a system that has many many hops that are all doing that all have retry policies even if it's with exponential back off then you have this kind of horrible worst-case behavior where you're actually increasing load at the time when you don't want that load which is when things are failing so you can move to, there's, there's different ways of doing retry policies. It's all encoded in Linkerd happily, so no one else has to live through this whole um, horrible lifestyle. Uh, sorry, the so horrible this, set of experiences. This, this, so that's super fascinating. I, I love that story. Um, I got another one, too. Uh, oh, well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I mean, uh, the th so there's, there are five or ten minutes left, and, like, I would love to talk more about Linkerd. If you, I mean, maybe, okay, how about this? <laughs> want to tell tell another story about Twitter? Explain uh, why Linkerd would be an appealing solution to the types of problems that you would encounter in whatever horror story you're about to tell. Okay, good, good. So in the first in that first story, right? Users who use Linkerd won't have to deal with that because we're smart enough to use retry budgets and deadlines and things like that rather than you know exponential back off and retry policies. And okay, so here's another story. It's another horrible thing that happened. 
Service discovery. Actually, there's about 20 stories I could tell about service discovery, but this one I like the best. <laughs> service discovery is the system that answers, okay, where it, where are the destinations here? Okay, I want to talk to service B. Where does service B live? And this becomes really important when you have things like Mesos or Kubernetes because those instances are shifting around all the time. Okay, service discovery goes down. All right, that's terrible. So let's let's be intelligent about when that happens and wait for it to come back up. What happens when service discovery is up? but is empty, okay? So the service discovery system is saying, yep, I'm up, I'm responding, here's your answer, it's zero, there's no one here. Okay, we had, we had at least one incident where someone accidentally deleted <laughs> all the data from service discovery, and as a result, the site went down. Okay, so that's the kind of, you know, experience that you only have, <laughs> that you only have, you know, <laughs> by actually uh, being on call for, for a site where, uh, you know, terrible things like that can happen. So the way that Linkerd treats service discovery is in a purely advisory fashion. So if something's in service discovery, we may or may not choose to talk to it. If, something's in, if something was in service discovery and gets removed from it, we may continue talking to it. And that's not really intuitive, right? You would expect service discovery to be the source of truth, but that's the right way to do things because we learned our lesson. Okay, so when things come into service discovery, we, we might not talk to them, or maybe we will later. When things got removed, we might still talk to them because you might have a problem with service discovery. So Linkerd will protect you against those sorts of problems as well. Awesome. And other operational challenges like circuit breaking, back pressure, load balancing, I think are also uh, assisted by Linkerd. Um, yes. I, I, I want to begin to close off by asking some, like, I, I'm always curious about the macro picture of this area. Um, we've been doing all these shows recently about Kubernetes, OpenShift, OpenStack, Mesos, and all of these next generation platforms. It's very hard for me to tell which of these platforms are stepping on each other's toes, where there is overlap. I mean, perfect example was today, I assumed there was some overlap between gRPC and Linkerd. I find out now they're basically harmonious. Um, where are the places where they are stepping on each other's toes? And is there enough room in the market for all of these different competitors? Well, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have a, I don't know that I have a really uh, interesting answer in response. You know, it's, there certainly is a lot of stuff happening and it's good. I think overall it's a good sign. People are pushing boundaries. It's clear that there's a need, you know, to do to do this sort of thing. Like the internet's not getting any smaller. It's getting bigger. Okay. As more people move to I mean, the is cloud, this is this like the is it like the question of what database are you using or what programming language are you using where this is, you know, th these things are not competi really competitive with one another because it's just like it's boils down to a matter of preference or or I don't know how how your company evolves chronologically, or I don't I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's too early to tell. You know, the 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 most obvious example of competition, such as it is, is in my mind, is between Kubernetes and Mesos. I yeah. cut my teeth on Mesos and had a very good experience with it at Twitter. Uh, at Buoyant, we we've been spending a lot of time with Kubernetes as well as with Mesos, but we kind of pushed ourselves to learn about Kubernetes, and there's a lot that I love about that, too. Um, are they competition? Like, is only one going to win at the end? That's less clear to me. They have different strengths 
and they have uh, different weaknesses. And I can I can certainly think of use cases where I would prefer one over the other uh, today. But you know, the question is more: what's going to happen? You know, five years? What's the world going to look like five years from now? That's a little harder to predict. Sure is. And there's also like the question of how the cloud providers play into this because, you know, how friendly is Amazon going to be about deploying Kubernetes on Amazon? Why would they be friendly about it when they have ECS? Or maybe they will want to open it up. I, I don't know. It's, you know, that the, the cloud right. provider question, it just like crosses over into this Venn diagram also. Is the whole, you know, release of Kubernetes this long game by Google to wedge people off of AWS and onto something else. That's what it seems to be. Um, I mean, one thing one thing that's super interesting is that uh, I just did a show about SR, the SRE uh, role at Google, and he mentioned that internally, they're moving a lot of services to the GCP, the Google Compute Cloud, which was news to me. I didn't know that they were doing that thing, which is basically kind of in reverse what Amazon did with AWS, like, hey, we've got, you know, Amazon built this internal service, and they're like, okay, we're going to externalize it. Um, and then I guess, uh, well, and then and then what Google did was basically, okay, we built GCP, we've got it built, now let's move all of our operations to the external service so that we can battle test it more and make it more amenable to people using it. But the other thing that I wonder about is like, how much are these cloud providers actually competing with one another? Maybe they have mutually exclusive roles, like Google is the best at machine learning or they're, they're the best at Kubernetes. Amazon is, I don't know, the best at... Uh, <laughs> okay, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what Must the answer to that is. But maybe there are domain-specific challenges that they get the best at. Um, My sense is that they are really competing with each other. And it's, it's yeah. uh, you know, the question is, is more... Is this like an 80-20 situation or is it like a 30-30-30 situation? I guess it adds mm-hmm. your, you know, really gets going. Um, but yeah, I really think they are competing with each other. And the, the one the one thing that's really positive from all this, I think, is that people are more wary about building into, you know, uh, a particular cloud provider. So if you're building stuff that's very AWS specific, well, now you're kind of locking yourself in into that do you want to do that? And for a long time, that was the only game in town. And so you did it and you made use of things like ELBs and, you know, ECS. And some of these tools are actually quite, you know, very powerful and, and save you a lot of time. But I think there's more reluctance to do that now because you might want to hop onto, you know, GCE or you might want to hop onto Azure. Um, and this is where things like Mesos and Kubernetes get particularly interesting because you can, if you de- develop for one of those platforms, then maybe you now have a way of kind of being multi-cloud or, or cross-cloud without having to do a whole lot of application re-engineering. Absolutely. And even the government is thinking in these terms. The the cloud.gov project that is the internal government platform as a service for the United States, it's built on AWS, but they have a layer of Cloud Foundry between AWS and the platform as a service itself. So they have they're open to switching if they need to in the future. Yeah. I mean, this is like the number one rule of, of, of ops is don't add a dependency that you don't have control over. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, William, this has been a really interesting conversation, really engaging. 
Um, we talked about a lot of different things. Um, you know, if you need an RPC proxy, go check out Linkerd. Um, and everybody should just check out Buoyant.io. Keep an eye, keep an eye on it. Um, William, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate talking to you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It was great being here. And I'll and I'll say, if you are interested in Linkerd, you can check out Linkerd.io as well. We have a very active uh, Slack channel. We've got a lot of documentation. It's a fully open source project, and we're excited about uh, you know we're excited about adoption, and uh, we're eager to get folks using it. 